Right. Well, thanks for having us. This. Um, you will need your Bibles tonight. Now, Dave just mentioned there's a few resources over in uh, uh, where, you, where you have uh, supper. So I'll just let you know what they are. There's a, a little bit of a discussion guide on this subject that we're looking at tonight, the struggle of prayer. And it goes for this week and next week. It's a discussion that could take 10 to 15 minutes after tonight or 15 to 20 minutes next week uh, on the other topic. So um, they're not really full-blown Bible studies, but they could be really good conversation starters. And often when you have a conversation about the sermon, it can cement things for you and may lead to you um, changing what you're doing as a result. So there's plenty of those over there. Um, the other thing is for each year we do a conference um, and two years ago we did a conference on reframe work. So it was a whole, how does the Bible, what does the Bible have to say about work? And that's a little booklet that you can pick up. It's, you know, it's not the final word on work, but boy, it's got some great things in there. And when we did this conference with about 100 people, some of them said, why didn't someone go through this with me when I was in my early days of work? I didn't understand how God had made me for work and how I could do that. So is that. And then uh, this year we did reframe rest because we'd worked the year before, so then we did rest <laughs> this year. And one of the things that fell out of that was learning how to rest, learning how to really rest the way God has designed us to. And that's a sort of a seven-day or seven-session devotion on rest. So you look at a different thing in the Bible each day on rest and build up your understanding of what rest is. Okay, that's my shameless uh, audacity, um, as we heard before. (laughs) Um, So let's have a look at this topic of prayer tonight. And I've called this the struggle of prayer. And we're going to look at a few things together. We're going to look at what is prayer in the world. Uh, Then we're going to have a look at Jesus' prayer life to see whether we can learn anything from that. Uh, We're going to discover what prayer is according to Jesus, what it isn't, and why we don't pray. So what's prayer generally like considered in the world nowadays? What does Jesus say prayer is? Uh, What isn't prayer? prayer according to Jesus and then um, why don't we pray all right so the pandemic and the Ukraine conflict and the potential for other conflict is sort of all knocking on the door at the moment and anyone who's studied World War II will know that it feels awfully like the murmurings and the 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 rumblings before something like that happening all over again. It's a trigger point. And when you see that footage of, you know, and we're getting used to it now, which is a shame, but when you see the the footage of um, a Western-looking European country bombed out, having absolutely, you know, everything taken out of it, um, it is distressing. And the leaders get on and uh, sometimes they say, Uh, they say this, they say our thoughts and prayers are with the victims and their families. And I don't know what they mean by that. You know, like I don't know whether it's a token thing or whether they really do mean they pray. But, you know, you don't hear it as much these days, but it's, 
it makes you think, what, what do they actually mean by that? What are they saying prayer will do or is? And we live in a world where people might say prayer as a topic, but they won't define what it is for us. And Christians need to understand what they mean by prayer in a climate where we don't have a definition these days. In a recent prayer survey, um, I asked a whole group of people who are Christians, what do you think prayer is? This is what they came up with. Talking to God, um, a means of petitioning or asking, um, an act of faith, a lifeline to my creator. So, in his book on uh, history and psychology of prayer, uh, Friedrich Heiler, he makes a really interesting distinction. He says, you know, when you look at, cult, uh, when you look at uh, groups through history, there are really two types of praying. Um, the first type is tribal or primitive prayer, which is largely spontaneous and very self-centred. The petitioner is securing the divine being for, you know, um, rain for their crops or something uh, for their prosperity, you know. The second type, he says, is a ritual prayer, which often is part of a more developed society. Uh, its, its effectiveness is bound up in doing it the right way and repeating the right phrases or getting it in the right order. But the intention is the same as the primitive prayer. You're just trying to secure stuff from a God somewhere to you know, help you get through life. So what is prayer in modern society? Um, some people see it as a bit of a self-help therapy. You know, as they pray things through, they work out what they should do with their life. Um, um, it's sort of like you know, self-realisation. You know, I, I become more aware because I've taken the time out to pray about it. Some people, prayer is magic. You know, they, they put in the right thing and they get the right response out. They do the mantra the right way, the right number of times and bingo, they get the result that they're looking for and then they talk about that to people. Um, for some, it's pragmatics. So you ask someone, why do you pray? And they say, oh, I pray because it works. You know, I've, I've found, here's this situation, this situation and so on in my life and it works. Um, the great mystics of church history they sort of saw prayer not so much as securing things but basically just combining with the divine force in this world. It's a bit vague but it's, it's not asking necessarily for stuff. It's becoming bonded. The recent census now says only 44% of Australians identify with Christianity. So what that means is we're living in a world where Christians don't have the preserve on prayer anymore. Prayer is a much, much wider um, domain for people. So one of my, one of my, my daughter and her husband watch The Block every Sunday night. They're probably watching it now if it's on. But um, they, they told me it was really fantastic I watched it the other night and thought, I can't bear watching any more of this. But anyway, I watched one episode with my wife and on the block there were two Muslim guys and they track all the couples building and renovating these houses 
And they, they interview these guys and they, they, there they are first thing in the morning, the sun's coming up and they've got their mat out and they're praying to Allah. And then um, they interview them and the guys say, well, you know, um, we, the reason why we pray is it sets us up for the day. Um, and particularly a day of renovating where we might win the prize, you know. <laughs> so I thought, you know, the traditional categories of Christians being the pr- prayer people has gone out the window now in our society. Um, the categories of praise and confession and petition that we talked about before, that Dave mentioned in the service when we were going through it, they've been replaced by mantras and mindfulness and writing gratitude lists. Um, and the key is integrating, getting the divine and the human together in the same place. It's quite vague. Um, at the gym that I go to, um, the guy that I train with, he says when it starts to get hard, go to your happy place. And I think that's what people are doing when they talk about prayer or mindfulness or positive psychology. They're saying, I'm just going to my happy place. The Bible's approach to prayer is utterly different to that. It's based on revelation. In other words... People address a God who has previously shown himself either his character or his his behaviour or both. So listen to Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles 6. He says, O Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you who keeps your promise of love with your servants, who promised to your servant David, my father. And then it goes on and lists what he did with David. Uh, his father, that is God. So people in the Bible knew God's character, they knew his past behaviour and they called on him to, to behave and to do what he had done with others. All their prayers are built on a known God who has related to people before in history. And our prayer book captures that wonderfully. Most of the prayers, if you open the prayer book, even though the language is a little bit old-fashioned, Most of the prayers are based on the Bible and on stories and incidents in the Bible. So listen to this. This is the prayer for in a time of drought. It says, All things look to you, O Lord, to give them their food in due season. Look in mercy on your people and hear our prayer for those whose lives and livelihood are threatened by drought. And that's lifted straight from Psalm 145, verse 15. So biblical prayer is first and foremost a union with a knowable God. It's personal, it's highly relational. In prayer, our hope depends not on the right technique, getting the right words and the right phrases out, but on the prior promises of a self-revealing God. Prayer is about coming to God empty-handed, where our acceptance is not based on something... uh, other than our eloquence, or not based on our eloquence in praying. I love this definition of prayer. This, this is by Jacques Salal, who wrote a book on prayer. He said this, Prayer is a renunciation of human means. It's a stripping bare. It's the abandonment of all human apparatus in order to put myself in the hands of the Lord put myself in the hands of the Lord. Abandonment of all human apparatus. That's what he says prayer is. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I'd like to learn how to pray like that. So let's look at Jesus' own prayer life and see whether that helps us. If you turn to uh, uh, Matthew's Gospel, uh, sorry, first of all, let's look at Luke. Um, Go to Luke 11 on page, I think it's 1582, and have a look at this story. Uh, where the disciples come to Jesus and ask about prayer because you need to know what's already happened. So what's already happened in Luke 5 is the crowds have sought to hear Jesus and be healed by him and it says, but Jesus went off to a lonely place and prayed. You go to chapter 6 and it says, on those days Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the whole night praying to God. And then you find out the next morning he comes in and he picks his team of 12 disciples based on that night of prayer. In chapter 9, when Jesus takes Peter and John and James up the mountain and he gets transformed before their eyes into who he really is, Lord, um, and they see all that. And then chapter 10... They go out on mission together and when they come back and explain what's happened on that mission, Jesus says, well, you know, he just breaks into spontaneous prayer in the middle of the conversation and says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. So, knowing all that, when you get to chapter 11, verse 2, I think you could justifiably read it like this. One day... Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he had finished, the disciples elbowed each other and said, go and ask him how to pray. No, no, you ask him how to pray. No, 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 you go. Oh, all right, I'll go. Jesus, how do you pray like that? You see, it's the, it's the building, simmering curiosity in watching him pray. That bubbles over into their question here. And how does Jesus respond? Well, he doesn't say, ah, okay, so we're ready for the unit on prayer in the discipleship manual. Turn to page 1582 and we'll start going through that together now. No, he doesn't. He responds to them and teaches them how to pray. This has been a prolonged experience and exposure to Jesus that's led them to the point of wanting to learn how to pray. They've got an appetite for it. They've got a hunger for it. And he shows them how to pray. It's what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's familiar, but really we have to look at it with fresh eyes. So to do that, let's look at the fuller version that's in Matthew's uh, Gospel that we have read to us. And you'll find that, oh dear, um, I had it, and now I don't have it anymore. Can somebody tell me where it is? In one, one four seven six. So have a look at that with me. And what you find from the start is that Jesus tells them to call God Father which is a pretty radical departure from Jewish practice. It speaks volumes about 
them being in a relationship, about them having a connection to God, a confidence of being in a unique and intimate relationship. But it also does something else. It reminds them that they're in a family where God is the Father. And when you're in that family, you take up the family priorities. And what are the family priorities that they should be preoccupied with? Well, you can list them there. Um, God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. At its outset, this prayer stops you from being obsessed with your own name and making it great, of your own sphere of control getting extended, and of your own will having its way. Can you see that? It begins with God and God's concerns and only after we get that sorted in our prayers do we move on to our needs. Our daily bread, our daily sins, our daily preservation from evil goes from the glorious right down to the mundane stuff. They're all covered in this prayer. It's a great model of prayer. It's not that you have to say it and repeat it over and over again. It's just the content and the The order of it is so good in terms of getting you into perspective. It is God-centred. It reminds you of God's priorities, but it doesn't neglect your needs. And by calling God your Father, you are being utterly vulnerable. It's a great model of prayer. It's a prayer to your Divine Father whose name you are obsessed to treat properly, whose kingdom's boundaries you want to see expanded in the lives of your friends and your work colleagues, who hears your necessities, who understands your need for forgiveness constantly and hears your call to be rescued. Now, few religions will ever give you a prayer like that, with that sort of intimacy. So if that's how Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, why don't we pray? Well, I I went to that survey again and here are the responses. I've got an overactive mind. I have a niggling suspicion that that I'm just talking to myself again. Uh, I feel guilty. I can't pray. I don't think God is interested Um, I think what I'm going to ask is superficial. Well, there's some of the responses. Doing uh, workplace ministry and meeting people, Christians, during the week when they're in work mode, I reckon the most common thing I've heard from Christians in the workplace is, I am just exhausted. I'm so busy. COVID's made everything worse. Working from home isn't as much fun as I thought it would be. I'm trying to run teams and I've got eight people on a screen and I'm trying to look at them all and I'm exhausted after an hour of trying to read their faces. I just can't find time in my life to pray. Now, all those reasons might be fair enough, but have a look at what Jesus says Jesus goes on to tell a story in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 11 in Luke. 
And he suggests a surprising reason why you won't pray. Um, It's because we have a warped view of God. Look at it, verses 11 and 12. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? I did a bit of research and I didn't realise this, but in Palestine, even today, there is a little scorpion, a little pale scorpion, that when it's at rest and not attacking, it all folds up into a nice little egg shape. So this is something they understand. And what Jesus is saying is, will a father answer the request of his child for an egg with an egg-shaped horror? Do you see the point? Jesus is saying, why don't we pray? Because we think God gives booby traps for presents. Jesus' answer is we think our Heavenly Father will turn our trust into an opportunity to abuse us. No. Is that right? Well, according to Jesus, yes. (laughs) Human nature is like this. Think about it with your own prayers. Have you ever not prayed about something because you don't want God to know that you know about it and he might then point you in that direction <laughs> that you don't want to go. <laughs> so I had that experience just tonight, driving here, thinking about something. I thought, I don't want to pray about it because then I have to do something about it. Um, my wife, many, many years ago, when we got together, told me that earlier in her life, when she was a student, she studied... Spanish, and she was very good at Spanish. And then she used to go to the CMS, Church Missionary Society, conference in her state and loved going to it. And, of course, they talked there about going overseas on mission work. And then she had some friends who went to South America, so South America, Spanish, friends there. She said to me that she had tied herself up completely in knots because she thought that God would send her to South America precisely because she didn't want to go to South America. <laughs> when she told me, I said, wow, wow, that's a really contorted view of God and his character. He'd send you to the thing that you hate. Which of you fathers tricks his son by giving him an egg like scorpion? If even sinful parents instinctively give good gifts to their children, why would you think any less of your heavenly father? You know, God's gregarious. He actually enjoys his creatures and particularly mankind. We don't realise how much he wants to relate to us how much he wants to shower his good gifts on us, how much he wants to use us the way that he has wired us. And he's wired us all very differently. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he didn't say, he didn't talk about posture or the best times of the day or, you know, that, you know, put a limit on it because, you know, when you're trying to learn. He told them what's at the core of why they won't do it. That's very smart. 
He says it's all about trust at the end of the day. It's trust in a father who is not in the habit of tricking you when you let your guard down. If you think that's what God is like, you will never pray earnestly or sincerely. So we've looked at what prayer is, why we don't pray, what about what prayer isn't. And to do that, we have to go to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 13. Jesus points out what prayer isn't. He's speaking to his disciples through the crowd. He's giving his big address called the Sermon on the Mount here. And let's look at what he says in verses 5 and 6. Have a look at it with me, Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen. I tell you the truth, they have their reward in full. When you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done will reward you. So this is, this is um, there's a few of these in Matthew, five, uh, Matthew uh, 6. But it's about the visible, invisible dilemma situation. And in this case... Um, to do with prayer. And Jesus is really underlining who are the frauds in the world of prayer. And he says, those people who love the high-vis stuff when it comes to praying, you know, they pray with one eye on the audience. Now, if you end up leading as a Christian in ministries... Um, you know, whether that's sea camp or up here or whatever, you need to be aware that you can be prone to this. I know I need to be. Words to God in the public arena can easily change and be manipulated towards other people in the hope that they, are, they will find you more sturdy or robust as a Christian or more theologically crisp or I don't know. But somehow they'll say, you know, oh gee, wasn't that a good prayer tonight from so-and-so. But we can even do it when we're praying together with other people. I mean, the way that we, the way that we sit down, the way that we adopt a stance, the way that, you know, we look like you know, we've got indigestion um, on our facial expression. Whatever it is that we do in the presence of other people to somehow show them that we're praying at this point in time. Jesus says, you need to have God's glory in mind, not yours, when you pray. When Jesus says, shut the door and pray to your Father in secret, he's not saying all prayer has to be private. He's saying... Just do it for me. Do it for God, not for others. Not for the praise and approval of in the public arena. And I know which one is actually better in the end, which reward is more longer lasting. When else is prayer not prayer? In verse 7 he says, when you pray, don't babble on like the pagans. Oh, I think he's referring to the Romans here and the Greeks. But the original word that he uses here sounds exactly what it's meant to be. So when you say the word in the original language, it sounds like the activity. And the word is 
battalogio. So it's a battle of words. And he says, don't battalogio when you pray. It's the speech of a motor mouth. You know, it's that sort of speech that just comes out without any thought. It works on the notion that the more you say, the more likely you'll be heard. It's sort of mechanical prayer. And God is not interested in it. And I don't care whether you do it with a prayer book or a rosary or in tongues or well-worn evangelical phrases that you've picked up along the way in life. This is not dialogue of a relationship. It's the spluttering of a machine. So two things that prayer isn't. Prayer is never playing to the crowd. And prayer is not being a motor mouth. So we've looked at what prayer is, what prayer isn't, and why we don't pray by taking a good glimpse at Jesus' response to prayer. Being honest, um, you know, I got this out and started preparing this and thinking, what is my prayer life like at the moment? And so I'm asking you, you know, what's the state of your prayer life at the moment? Being honest. You know, there's a struggle to pray that's referred to in the Bible, but it's different to the one that I often face. It's the struggle in prayer rather than the struggle with prayer. Colossians 4 verse 12 there's this throwaway line at the end of Paul's letter. And he says, he talks about a guy called Epaphras, and he says, Epaphras, who is always wrestling in prayer for you, always wrestling in prayer for you. And again, the original word is agonizomai, which is what we get the word agony from. I go to the gym during the week, and at my local gym, I join with other people who try and... Well, I won't repeat what they say when they're doing exercises sometimes that are hard because that's not fair uh, to use those words in this place. But what they're effectively saying, when they look up and you see their expression on their face, they're saying, agonizomai. <laughs> they're going through great struggle to do what, what is required. And that's exactly what the word means. It's the struggle of an athlete. It's not just the physical, it's the mental struggle that's involved in it as well. And prayer is exactly that. Like so many things in life which don't come easy but take time and you know, perspiration and effort to learn how to do well. And we're crazy if we think that prayer is something that we can just get up and do and then... Um, stop and then do something else. Overwhelmingly, the Bible portrays people struggling in prayer. Struggling in prayer. Luther, the great reformer, said, nor is prayer ever heard more abundantly than in such agony and groanings of a struggling faith. So if you struggle in your prayers, you're in good company. I once asked a friend, you know, what's the most significant thing that you remember about your dad? And he goes, oh, on the days when I got up early, which weren't that often, but when I had to go off to work or do the paper round or whatever it was, um, he said, I'd go past his study, I'd see the crack 
of light underneath the door and I knew he was on his knees wrestling in prayer over me before God. He said, that, that memory of that has just had a profound impact on my life. Do you want to be a person of prayer? Because in evangelical circles currently, this used to be our marker. But there's a bit of a, pride of, a plight of prayerlessness in the evangelical world. And we need to recover what it means to pray. Will you seek out people who can teach you how to pray? Just as you'd seek out people to learn anything else that's critical for your life. Like the disciples of Jesus, will you make the humble request? We say, look, could you teach me how to pray here? For many Christians, prayer is like breakfast on the run. You know, they, they get up in the morning, they're running late, they grab a muesli bar, they, you know, chomp into it. And in between all that and the shower running and the toilet flushing and the teeth brushing, they get out the door and get to wherever they need to be to. Now, you might be able to do that occasionally, but you can't live on a diet like that. And some Christians think that that's how they can pray. Are you willing to wrestle in prayer? You know, God may be challenging you with people in your life, your family, friends. He may be putting that burden on your shoulders and saying, will you wrestle over that person and their salvation? And it will be a hard mantle to wear. But will you? Will you labour over family? Will you labour over this church family and your witness in Tea Tree Gully? Gosh, if you don't pray for Tea Tree Gully, I don't know who else you expect will. Will you join in the struggle to pray? The struggle with prayer. Let's pray now. Lord, we want to be honest about our own prayer life before you now. The difficulties we face with it. We're convinced of the value of prayer, but that doesn't often translate into time to pray. Help us to become people of prayer. People who struggle in prayer rather than just struggle to pray. And we ask this for your sake. Amen.